Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is, of course, a very sunny Thursday morning. It was the day after uh, the biggest strike, apparently, for at least a decade, uh, possibly two decades, possibly three decades, depending on who you talk to. Supposedly 500,000 people, public sector workers to a large extent, uh, in fact, all of them were, uh, went out on strike yesterday. Teachers, civil servants, security guards, train drivers, bus drivers. There's still the residue of the train strike going on this morning. Uh, I'm going to be asking you this morning. How was it for you? Uh, because once again, we find ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, in what can only be described as a bit of a divided nation. Because if you work for the public sector, if you are in receipt of some rather good uh, in-work benefits, if you are in receipt of a rather gold-plated pension, if you are in receipt uh, of an almost annual pay rise, no matter what the rate of inflation is, no matter how good your business is doing, and no matter how well you are performing, uh, then you are obviously doing rather nicely. Thank you very much indeed in your feather-bedded public sector job. Whether whether it be in the NHS, whether it be in the education business, whether it be driving trains, whether it be uh, sitting on buses, whether it be uh, handing out mail to people, you're all doing okay, thanks very much indeed. Meanwhile, if you haven't got much money and you're not in the public sector, you might find British Gas breaking down your front door uh, to put an energy meter in because you're not affording your gas bill very much and you're not paying the money they want you to pay. That's on the front page of the Times this morning. Absolute scandal. British Gas breaking into homes of the vulnerable. Brilliant. Meanwhile, uh, you've got some energy companies making rather a lot of money in profits. And of course, the windfall tax system, which we have instituted to make it fairer for everybody, uh, doesn't appear to be working. So what should we do about that? I know. Let's have a look at Rishi Sunak, who is the prime minister and has been the prime minister for 100 days. Uh, Today's the day we're going to look back on those 100 days to see if anybody can remember anything that he's actually done. Can you remember anything that he's done? But we've got a question for you because today uh, Piers Morgan is interviewing the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and he will be showing that to you at 8pm tonight right here on Talk TV. Uh, So we've got the right to ask you to ask him a question. So if you've got a question for Piers Morgan to ask the Prime Minister, please send it in to us. You can tweet us uh, at IROMG, at Talk TV, of course. Uh, send it to us. We'll pass it on to Piers and he'll ask it to the Prime Minister. What could be simpler? What a great idea, I hear you say. Coming up this morning, we're going to be talking to Candice Holdsworth, writer and commentator. We've got uh, a Bank of England interest rate coming up around about midday. So if you haven't paid your mortgage yet, you might want to pay it before midday because uh, it will be going up after that. Uh, James Heal is going to be here to give us an appreciation of 
uh, of the first 100 days of the Prime Minister. Paul Morgan Bentley brings us the British gas story. Uh, Professor Frank Ferradi is here as well. Also, down under, they decided to take the Queen's head uh, and indeed the potentially King's head uh, off their £5 note uh, or their $5 note, whatever it is. Uh, apparently, they don't want to be associated with the empire anymore. Uh, they'd rather have some form of uh, Australian figure on there. Fair enough. I don't suppose that matters too much to an awful lot of people, but it's further evidence, is it not, uh, that this kind of creeping anti-monarchist, anti-British empire feeling is pervasive now all over the world. Apparently, we're the bad guys and we should be very, very sorry indeed. Well, I'm not sorry uh, and I'm not going to apologise. So there. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, we'll be bringing you all sorts of other interesting stuff as well, including the fact uh, that the Welsh Rugby Union have banned the song Delilah. All I can say is why? I mean, obviously, right? Apparently it's about domestic violence. Hmm. So they can't be singing that then. And that'll probably put a stop to all domestic violence now after Welsh rugby games, particularly when they lose, uh, when all of the women, uh, unfortunately, don't look forward to their men coming home because they beat them up. Why? 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 Delilah. This is Talk TV. A very good morning to you. Welcome to uh, what can only be described as the rebirth of the Independent Republican Mike Graham. I'm finally feeling human after about a week of feeling slightly under the weather. Missed the show on Monday because uh, my voice had completely conked out. Uh, I'm here to be back to my full strength, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, so I'm going to be here annoying everybody uh, for the next three hours. Of course, uh, there's lots of you uh, that want to get in touch and we will talk to many of you. Uh, and if we do miss some of you, just keep trying and we will get to you, please. 0344 499 RAF faces crisis over Drive for Diversity, front page uh, of The Telegraph. The mail uh, goes with the teachers, of course, because there's now calls for a new law to stop school strike mayhem because an awful lot of people had to look after their own children yesterday. Why? Because schools were forced to close, not because people were on strike, but because the schools didn't know how many people were going to be on strike. So let's kick things off this morning with Candice Holdsworth. Uh, as a mother, um, how did it all affect you? A very good morning to you, Candice. Morning. Um, I'm lucky. My kids are still quite young, so they're at nursery, so it didn't affect us at all. They went to nursery yesterday and were looked after. So, But for other parents who had older children, yesterday was a really, really disruptive day. The only good thing was is that they could send the little ones to nursery. Yes. I mean, I think the trouble now is that we've got currently a kind of a public sector in revolt, haven't we? I mean, and it's very clear that they're not working at all separately, that they're working very much in cahoots because all of the reasons that they give for striking are identical. You know, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a nurse, whether you are uh, a Royal Mail worker, whether you're a train driver, whether you're a conductor, uh, whether you're some kind of uh, bus driver, everything is the same. It's not just about money. It's all about retention of workers. It's all about conditions. You know, we're all on our knees. None of us can get by. We're all using food banks. You know, the narrative is so ludicrous and preposterous. Um, but everybody's using it. Yes, it's so true. And from what I've been reading, there's been a lot of reports into how some of the unions, the teachers' unions, the BMA, they've been captured by hard left factions mm. that are really pushing these strikes, even though they're not necessarily that popular with the members. I mean, a lot of teachers voted not to strike. And also, from what I've noticed, I mean, this is just anecdotally, but a lot of people who've been generally supportive of the strikes actually haven't been that supportive of the teachers' strikes. Yeah. Number one, because it's just yet more disruption to kids' schooling. But also, I think a lot of people were angered by the behaviour of the unions during the lockdown, constantly pushing for school closures. I mean, they just put their own interests first. I mean, it's almost like teacher, It's almost like children don't factor into it at all. 
Yes, exactly right. And I mean, you know, the idea that somehow we now have a two-tier system in this country, i.e. people that work in the public sector who have jobs which are pretty well protected, uh, which pretty much get an annual pay rise no matter what the business is doing, and who yeah. get incredibly good pensions, levels of pensions the like of which the private sector would never see. We don't hear any of that narrative at all, do we? No, yes. When you look at the, the total package, uh, when you compare a private uh, sector's worker to a public sector's worker's pension, I mean, the public sector, I mean, they get really generous pensions. I mean, it enables them to even retire early when everyone else's retirement age is, is going up. And what some people have said is, OK, take a less generous pension and then more pay now. But of course, they would never, never go for that. That would never happen. Also, what other people have, have raised, and I think that this is very relevant, is, OK, you want pay to go up. But is your productivity going to go up as well? You know, what sort of service are you providing? Because if someone gets a pay rise, it usually means that they take on more responsibility, they're doing a better job. And have we seen that in the civil service, for example, looking at the processing of driver's licenses, passports? No, we haven't. Well, why do we also keep getting this ridiculous whine from civil servants and teachers and everybody else in the public sector? We are on our knees. The paying conditions are so awful, we can't handle it anymore. You know, God forbid they should ever actually have challenging jobs. Yes. Well, this is the thing. I mean, especially food banks, and, and this has been pointed out time and time again, it's almost used in a manipulative way so-and-so has to go use a food bank. And now food banks have become, have become politicized mm. and they've been used to illustrate that someone's in dire poverty because they have to use a food bank. And that can be someone on a 35,000 pound a year salary, which if that's your sole household income, I will grant, won't leave you much at the end of the month. But food banks are generally for people on rock bottom incomes, you know, people who really don't have any money at all. Well, that's not only not only true, but also I'm sure that this food bank uh, narrative is absolute nuts of cobblers because I was talking to Dr. Renee Hunderkamp and I've spoken to doctors in the past. You can't go and join up with a food bank just because you fancy it, just because you feel like you need to. In order for you to go to a food bank, you have to be referred to it, usually by your GP, right? So the idea that these teachers and nurses are suddenly just deciding that they can just pop to a food bank on the way home because they haven't got enough food to feed their families is a complete nonsense. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, and that is such a good point. And it's so good. We need more facts in this argument. Facts are important. Yes, because there's so much emotion around it. And it's very manipulative. Like I say, it's it's meant to make people feel guilty. Um, Have you been following the story of Jack Monroe? She's the food writer. Yes. She's very well known for talking about making food on a low budget. But as a lot of people have been saying, what she says doesn't quite add up. I mean, in her latest book, she tells people if you can't afford things like um, a can opener. Can openers are about 95p. Most people can afford a can opener. So she's part of this, this sort of wider narrative that absolutely nothing's affordable. People are absolutely desperate. You need to take extreme measures to just make ends meet at Mm. the end of the month. And I'm not saying that there aren't people in that situation. There are. There absolutely are. But I think that people on the average wage are certainly not. And that's just exaggerating things. And it's making people lose sympathy because they feel like they're being manipulated. 
Well, that's exactly right, because nobody in their right mind um, who is on a low income and who understands what it is like to have to feed uh, their families from hand to mouth, and they know what it's like to try and make a budget, are looking at the nurses who get paid a pretty decent salary, or the teachers who get paid an even better salary, and are, are in any way feeling sorry for them. Because there are many more people in this country who make a lot less money and who make a lot less noise about how awful their lives are. Yes, I mean, there was that insane story, I think you spoke about it on Plank of the Week, where one of the nursing, the, the te- nursing teaching union leader, nursing union leaders, said that nurses were taking food from patients' plates. Yeah. And no one challenged that. I mean, that is an insane claim. I mean, I, I do not think that is happening. No nurse would do something so unhygienic. Never, 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 never. Plus, you can go get a tin of beans from the shop for about yeah. 10 people. Well, exactly right. I mean, it just, I mean, but this is the trouble. You know, these narratives are, are played out, you know, certain sections of the media uh, like it because it looks as though we're being terrible to these people that we should be uh, clapping and we should be, you know, sort of heroising and telling them how brilliant they all are every single day of the week. And they've got such challenging jobs. And, you know, if it wasn't for teachers, the entire world would fall down around us and we'd all fall into a black hole of despair. You know, it's absolute cobblers. Do your job. Be proud of it. You know, but what I can say with absolute surety is that any teacher who refused to tell their school whether they were going on strike is not serving the needs of the children. They are simply serving the needs of a Marxist ideological union which is determined to bring down the Tories. Because the only thing you saw yesterday at these marches was an awful lot of socialist worker banners and an awful lot of banners that said, kick the Tories out. Well, that's been reported, yes, that these hard-left factions are using this as a battering ram against the Tories. You also hear people say, well, you need to do this to be effective. But the problem is you might not actually get the result you want, right? So you might not make people do what you want to do. Instead, they might consider actions that will mitigate that disruption. So now they're looking at at laws, which mean that teachers have to say whether or not they'll be coming in that day. So they can also have that effect as well. And I think the government's obviously closely monitoring how the public are viewing these strikes. I think with the nursing strike, they sort of had to go softly, softly, because public opinion wasn't totally against it. But I think with the teachers' strike, there's obviously a lot more irritation, because when teachers go on strike, I mean, that disrupts everyone's lives. I mean, parents can't go to work, and then that has knock-on effects. I mean, I would love it if, if everyone could be paid well, but the problem is, is we're not a country that's growing. We're in trouble. I mean, we need a plan to get the G- to get our GDP going again, to become a wealthy country, because as things stand at the moment, we're due to be overtaken by countries like Poland, which should really make yeah. people wake although, up and think, Although, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to have to bring more facts into the argument. It turns out that teachers in this country are best paid uh, in Europe. The teachers in other parts of European nations uh, are not paid as well as the teachers are in this country and they're not working uh, anywhere near as as little either. So people in this country as teachers get paid more per hour than in any other European country. And that's just a simple fact that they don't like people to know about. But stay with us, Candice, because we need to talk about British gas breaking into people's houses and telling them that they have to have a meter installed uh, because they need to pay as they go. Also, we'll talk about Australia uh, parting company with the royal family. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is the first 100 days, of course, of Rishi Sunak's prime ministership. Uh, prime Minister Rishi Sunak will be sitting down uh, at number 10 today for an exclusive interview with Piers Morgan tonight from 8pm. Don't miss it. Uh, it's PM and the PM tonight on Talk TV and Talk Radio. Watch it on Sky 522, Virgin Media 606, Freeview 237, or listen on Talk Radio uh, as in uh, DAB or uh, via the app, of course, as well. Lots going on, and if you want to ask a question uh, to the Prime Minister via Piers Morgan, please send it to us and we'll pass it on to Piers. One here from Gabby in Essex. Uh, question for Rishi Sunak. When is he going to start removing EU laws from the statute book? Also, when is he going to cut taxes? Very good idea. Question for the Prime Minister. How many of your cabinet, plus their husbands and wives, have got offshore dealings? And here's one from Victor. Ask him how much has his food shopping bill, electric and gas, council tax, etc. gone up over the last year? I bet, I bet he cannot answer uh, as he doesn't live in the real world. Well, it might well be that that's the case, but we'll find out tonight uh, exactly what kind of man he is. But uh, we're talking to Candice Holdsworth, writer and commentator. Candice, I mean, I've been struggling to think of something that Rishi Sunak's done of any great notes in the past 100 days. Can you think of anything? No, the jury's still out for me with Rishi Sunak. I find him very difficult to read. I think that's mostly because he doesn't really have a recognisable political philosophy. Mm. Everything that people have written about him say is that, well, he just sort of like thinks everything is a trade-off. If you have one thing, you can't have something else. But for me, that's just a personal approach to life. I don't know how that translates to grand vision politics. You know, we have to have a political constituency. People have to know where you're coming from. And his five pledges, fine, I think that they had the right priorities, but he always keeps everything quite close to his chest and he never says exactly how he's going to achieve, achieve those five pledges. You know, he's always saying that he's going to be bringing inflation down, but he never says why. Because things like interest rates, I mean, that's the Bank of England's decision. That's not his decision. Yeah. And, 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 and with other things as well, you know, he says he's going to, to look at um, reducing the debt. Okay, how is he going to yeah. do that? That may be going to be through growth, yet he doesn't want to, to cut taxes. You know, personally, people say, as a person, people say that he's very disciplined. You know, he, he takes a, a lot of time to get to, to, to get to grips with what he has to do. He's not lazy in any way. And I think that's great. That's wonderful. Those are all good things. But I think what he fails to do, I think what Rishi Sunak really fails to do, is to bring people along mm. with him and, and to say to people, this is what I can do for you. Yes. And that's what this trust was very good at. And that's why she beat him in the Conservative leadership race. She always had very concrete proposals and you always knew yeah. exactly how she planned to achieve them. Well, going He's back like yeah, going back to the, the, those summer months when he was campaigning for uh, the Prime Minister's job, you know, I kept asking his supporters, well, he keeps talking about bringing down inflation, but he doesn't say how he's going to do it. And he still never said how he's going to do it. And all of those qualities that you mentioned there, um, apart from the lazy one, um, him not being lazy, I mean, would it all apply to my Labrador? You know, he gets things done. He's very determined. You know, when he's looking for food, he absolutely knows where to look for it. He knows where to find it. He knows how to eat it. You know, he looks very, very good uh, as he walks around looking for the food. You know, he looks like an amazing character. You know, people like the look of him and all of those things are great if you're a dog. But unfortunately, this is a prime minister and he needs to be a little bit more dynamic, I think. And I think that's yes. what people would like to see. Um, but let's talk a bit about um, the monarchy now, because, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't like to sort of include South Africa. Africa, which is your sort of native land as part of what I call the kind of diaspora of, of European empires, but it kind of was. Um, what do you make of Australia's decision today? King Charles will not appear on the new Australian $5 note. It seems to be uh, that they've been sort of phasing out 
the Queen's head on quite a lot of the currency over the course of time. And this is like the final, the final sort of shoe has fallen. Yes. From what I know, from what people tell me about Australia, they have those sorts of divides there. There's those who are quite proud of their heritage as a British colony, and there are those who are deeply ashamed of it. Mm. And if you talk about the founding of Australia, they will only ever talk about it in negative terms. And I think at the moment, those those voices all over the world, that seems to be the case, are becoming a lot more powerful and a lot more influential and are really rejecting history and rejecting it in a big way. Mm. And, in, and in the most the most um, condemnatory terms. And do you think that's a dangerous precedent to set? Because, you know, there's clearly a, 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 it's a sort of tipping point when it comes to things like the Commonwealth, when it comes to things like, you know, the monarchy and its place in society. And, and not least because it's been kind of, if you like, um, stirred up an awful lot by the Harry and Meghan controversies over the past couple of years. You know, there is a body of the hall now, I suppose you would call it, in the world, which looks upon the British Empire as a bad thing, all told, you know, it can't have done anything good. It must have been completely bad. The royal family, therefore, must be completely bad. Therefore, it must be completely changed, ripped up, you know, ripped asunder and never to be seen again. Um, There doesn't seem to be any kind of middle ground here. No, I think Harry and Meghan have been very shrewd in tapping into that sentiment. They know exactly what they're doing and they know who they're appealing to. And you will often find that there's a big overlap between those who are anti-monarchy and those who are more sympathetic to Harry and Meghan. I don't know. You know, somewhere like South Africa, for instance, they were just indifferent to the Queen's death. I mean, I think, you know, they only became a Commonwealth country after apartheid. I don't think they feel much connection to the UK anymore. But Australia does. Australia is a different different story. And um, a lot of this is quite new. But I wonder, though, how much this anti-monarchy sentiment, how deep it runs in Australia. And if you were actually to ask the majority of the country, maybe people would be would be less militant about it. And maybe they'd be more in the middle. They'd say, you know, they're not they're not staunch Republicans, but they're not totally an anti-monarchy either. And I think that you'd have the same thing here as well if you were to poll ordinary people. One thing though that has always worried me is that a lot of the support for monarchy was based on the Queen's popularity, whereas Charles is a more complex character and people aren't totally sure about him. Mm. So I do wonder if, if it's contingent on who the monarch is. Yes, I'm sure that there is parts of the world where, you know, they're struggling to come to terms with, with the fact that the Queen is no longer the head of the monarchy and that Charles may well be a very different kettle of fish. But I think we should be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just suddenly go, oh, well, obviously. And I think Charles has to be careful as well because he can't suddenly go, well, we're just going to slim it all down uh, and it's not really going to be anything like what it was before. You know, I know he's going to go on some trips to the Commonwealth, but it seems to me that they need some clever people at the heart of the monarchy at the moment. Yes, yes, yes. People who know how to navigate the situation, who have a good handle on it. And I don't know if they do, because Charles as well hasn't really been seen much. He's been very quiet. He's almost like Rishi Sunak. He's just sort of stepping back, maybe a bit overwhelmed, Mm. trying to figure out what to do in these very tricky times. Um, And how he deals with Harry, I think, has been very controversial, because I think a lot of people have quite hard attitudes to Harry and Meghan Mm. attending the coronation. Totally, yeah. Oh, but yeah, I mean, as, as a father, he hmm. may want them there, and that puts it at odds with the public. Absolutely right. Final question on this gas, a British gas story on the front page of the Times today. I mean, incredible, really, that these uh, energy companies who are already milking the hell out of the public and making them pay ridiculous amounts of money for their energy, um, actually forcefully entering people's homes, unbeknownst to those people, um, and basically kind of inserting 
a device which, mean, which means they cannot get electricity or gas unless they pay for it ahead of time. Yes, yes. There were some shocking quotes in that story. I mean, yeah. one of them said that if there's an elderly woman in the house, great, that makes my job easy. Yeah. So, I mean, they know what they're doing. Mm. Um, the fact of the matter is, sure, these companies aren't charities. They have to protect their bottom line. But the people who are having these prepayment meters fitted are often people who just can't pay the bills. The bills have just skyrocketed mm. and they can't afford it. You know, it's elderly people who are disabled. It's young mothers on their own with really small children. I think there was a mother in there who said her bill went from something like 50 pounds to over 300 pounds. And she had a young newborn baby and she just sort of lost track of time and didn't know how to figure it out. She said if it was just her, she would have sat with a quilt on the sofa. But when you have small children, you can't. The house just gets freezing. And I mean, these people, these debt collectors, they are ruthless. I mean, I was very unfortunate to live in a house. It already had the prepayment meter fitted when I was a student. And it was an absolute nightmare to Mm. deal with. I mean, you'd just be sitting there and suddenly everything would cut out in the house. It could be at any time of night and you'd have to go to the shop and get more. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like if you had children in the house. It would be terrible to handle. It would be absolutely dreadful, and they should be stopped from doing it. They are stopping from doing it. We're going to be talking to the lead uh, investigator from the Times uh, this morning, Paul Morgan Bentley. He's going to tell us exactly how they got that story, and and, uh, what a great job he's done getting it out there and stopping these vulnerable people from being attacked in this way, which is quite unseemly. Candice, thank you very much indeed. Candice Holdsworth, writer and commentator, giving us her view of not only uh, the last 24 hours in the public sector on the strike front, but also the first 100 days of Rishi Sunak. Coming up, uh, we'll be talking to James Hill from The Spectator to get his view uh, of this Prime Minister. Has he done anything worth a fag end? Has he just stabilised the markets? Is that it? Is there anything that you can say he's done? And what question would you ask him if you had the chance? This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. One of the highlights of the day today is going to be when we debate and discuss why it is, uh, why indeed it is that uh, Delilah is going to be banned from the Six Nations tournament this weekend. We've got Wales playing, of course, in the Six Nations uh, amongst the others. Scotland, Ireland, Wales, uh, England, Italy, France. The Six Nations always a great rugby tournament. BBC just about managing to hold on to it, I think, at the moment. We'll talk to Mark Saggers about it later on. But the ludicrous nature of the way that the wokists are now affecting the world is that they think Delilah, because it's supposedly about a bit of domestic violence. It's a song, by the way, made famous, of course, by Tom Jones in Wales uh, and around the world. Um, uh, the, the, the crowds are going to be told not to sing it. That's going to work really well. Can you imagine? We can't sing this. So let's have a go, shall we? 50,000 people singing Delilah. Good luck arresting them all and locking them all up over the weekend, putting them in Cardiff Castle. Uh, Paul in Fife says this, Mike, if the wokists are in such a minority, how the hell have they managed to put themselves in positions to change our way of life, our language, how we behave, our spoken views, what we read, what we watch on TV? Your own TV radio station is an exception. But for how long, Mike? Well, for as long as I'm alive on it, that's for sure. Our new Prime Minister shouted loudly on his appointment that he would go to war against the woke culture. And that failure to the growing list, add that failure to the growing list of his non-achievements for his first 100 days. Well, we shall see. Uh, We'll let you know how that all goes. But let's now talk some more about Rishi Sunak's first 100 days in Downing Street. James Heal, diary editor here at The Spectator uh, and a frequent contributor at Talk TV. Um, James, very good morning to you. How are you doing? Morning, Mike. Good, thanks. I'm still looking for somebody to tell me what has been achieved in the first 100 days of the Sunak regime. I'm not sure I can think of anything in particular. Can you? 
Well, there's a couple of things. And I think, first of all, it's worth saying his mission one on day one was to take the excitement out of politics after the 49-day experiment of uh, Liz Truss. So the first thing was market confidence, restoring that. Uh, and you have seen things like the Bank of England's guilt buying operation. They've now been able to sell those guilts, uh, which they had to panic by during the trust days. Uh, and they made a bit of money about that, about five billion. Uh, and I think a lot of the stuff that they've been doing has been kind of behind the scenes. So you saw yesterday's times with the splash on movement on the protocol and getting a deal with the EU. So what his argument and the argument around people around him would be is that they are doing stuff. It's just less sexy, less headline grabbing because they don't want the case of Boris Johnson and his trust where it was big headlines, poor delivery and then disappointed voters in between. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we've still now got, though, there's kind of the circling sharks, if you like, of Boris Johnson mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and Liz Truss kind of, kind of coming back into the shallows, right? Sort of wandering about, doing a little bit of distraction here, a little bit of uh, obfuscation over there. Rishi Sunak sort of getting on with the job. But sadly for him, he just doesn't look the part, does he? Well, this is the criticism I hear from some MPs. I think some of the trusts like to say the word they use is overcorrection. So they had... Uh, this big pro-growth push, lots of tax cuts. And now Rishi's come in and done the opposite and been very sort of consensus. They think they've gone, he's gone too far in that direction, to trying to appease the money markets, etc. Uh, the other thing I hear from sort of fans of, sort of Boris is that, you know, Bo- Rishi Sunak isn't the commanding figure that, say, a Boris or a Thatcher or a Macmillan was, someone who can command the void and sort of uh, capture the political debate. Now, I think he is sort of uh, growing into that role. I think we see him getting better at PMQs. But I think you're right. People are now saying, OK, you've been a good manager, but is that going to be enough against the what they call the bland suit of Keir Starmer? Is that going to be enough to excite and get a majority next time? Uh, well, it's not just about him either, is it? It's about what he actually manages to make change uh, about the Conservative Party, which at the moment is viewed very much as not very conservative. You know, I mean, he came out uh, almost sort of uh, Orwellian-like on Wednesday in Privacy's Questions with the astonishing phrase, we've stopped the boats. And everybody yeah. kind of took a sharp intake of breath. I thought for a moment where, oh, we've got some breaking news here. What's he actually done? Well, he hasn't stopped them, has he? He can say he's stopped them. He can say he's going to bring the uh, inflation rate down. He can say all sorts of things. He's very good at sloganeering, but he's not very good at actually doing anything. I think some of these big problems are ones that have been neglected by prime ministers, sorry, prime ministers over the last few years or so, like the small boat crisis, which has grown, I think, from 300 or so uh, migrants in sort of 2018-19 to now around 50,000. So this is a big, big problem. Uh, I think he can perhaps justifiably say he needs a bit more time to, to deal with that. But you're right, people want action on this. And I was talking to a couple of Red Wall MPs last night, and they were they were really keen to see some of this. I think Suella Bradman is going to be introducing legislation to the Commons later this month. So we wait to see if that's going to get around the point about the uh, ECHR. Um, but, you know, clearly this is something that could cost the Tories a lot of seats in the Red Wall areas. It's a number one priority for a lot of those MPs. Uh, and they really want to see some action on this. So I do agree with what you're saying. But the other problem he's got is where he talks about being a new prime minister and having been in for only 100 yeah. days. And I mean, you think he had nothing to do with any previous government that existed before that. Well, of course, he did. He was involved in Boris Johnson's government right at the heart of it. He was involved very much um, all the way up until the point at which Johnson finally left. And in fact, you might argue that he was the guy that made him move and got him out. Um, so, you know, this is not a new world to him. You know, the idea of having to fight uh, the Home Office and having to get the Home Office to do stuff. You know, when he was Chancellor, he was in charge of all the money. Uh, you know, it's not like he's just having a new run at it because now he's in charge and before he wasn't. Well, quite. And elections are generally fought on two lines, uh, more of the same or time for change. And the sentiment, the public sentiment for time for change is growing. I saw polling last week, which said that I think about 55 percent of the public compared to just 22 percent of the public thought the country was going uh, in the wrong direction versus the right direction. 
Uh, so people are concerned about that. And as you say, at the end of a 13 years in government, uh, when the Conservative Party has had so many sort of ups and downs over the last few years, Brexit, party civil war, COVID, all these different things. It does seem a bit exhausted. That's the challenge for Rishi Sunak to try and reinvigorate his party, get them into some sort of election winning shape ahead of next year's contest, because at the moment um, it's a very difficult task. I mean, his other problem, I suppose, and I have some sympathy with this one, uh, is his uh, allegation that when he got in, he was going to be the Prime Minister of Integrity because he was going to try and move so far away from the Boris Johnson model that you were never going to see any kind of miscreants, you would never see any kind of misbehaviour. <laughs> and it seems to me that that's all that we've seen. Well, this is, I mean, this is a challenge. First of all, uh Politicians tend to have the odd uh, skeleton or two in a party of 360 of them. Uh, but more seriously, yes, I mean, prime ministers are judged by the standards they set. Uh, under Boris, uh, there was a very different standard, shall we say, uh, to what Rishi Sunak is aspiring to. But you go back, to, for instance, to the similar time period, which is back to the 90s. And John Major, of course, he had a, he had a campaign for standards and became known as Back to Basics. Yeah. And of course, every time there was a case of um, MP failing to live up to that, they got nailed by the press and the voters. And they well, it was better than that, because I remember living through that. I was working in Fleet Street at the time, and practically the moment he mentioned the phrase Back to Basics, there was one um, cabinet minister after another, literally on a daily basis, getting either caught out sleeping with somebody he shouldn't have, impregnating somebody he shouldn't have, <laughs> taking money from somebody he shouldn't have. I mean, it was just incredible. You, you could not have scripted it better. I mean, I think that these are sort of less salacious these times, but I think it is noticeable already how attention's turned turn from Nadim Zahawi to Dominic Raab and the allegations against him at the uh, MOJ and previous uh, civil service departments as well. So I think that there is a sense perhaps of uh, Rishi Sunak. This is the danger of any government at the end of the term is that you've only got so many people, only so many jobs to go around. Mm. Uh, and that if they can't go after the prime minister, there will be people who he's chosen to be in his top team. And as you say, if you're living, if you'll set the standard, why can't you live up to that? Well, quite. I'm going to give you the opportunity of a lifetime now, James, because uh, Piers Morgan's interviewing Rishi today um, and I'm asking people what question they would put to him if they were given the opportunity. What question would you ask Rishi Sunak? The question I'd ask Rishi Sunak, uh, I would say, uh, given all the fundamentals against you, uh, your lowest point in the polls for 30 years, how on earth can you turn this around? Yeah, good question. Uh, We'll put that one to him. James, thank you very much indeed. James Heal, diary editor of The Spectator. Um, Rishi Sunak does seem to have all the odds against him, does seem to be in an impossible position does also seem uh, to be a man who not very many people warm to. I don't know if that's his fault. I don't know if it's just the way the way things are, that, you know, people prefer charismatic individuals. I mean, Liz Trust failed for many reasons, not least because she had apparently no personality whatsoever. And she was really, really bad at presentation. Apart from that, uh, all of her policies blew up in her face. So I don't think she's a very good comparison to make. But Boris Johnson is still being spoken about in the higher echelons of the Tory party as a man who might come back. Every single sort of senior Tory I listen to who gets asked the question, could Boris return, always says, well, you can't really count him out. There's always a chance. How about this um, from Sarah in Sussex? Morning, Mike. I volunteered at a food bank. They're not shops, but for desperate people who've been sent by social workers or GPs for temporary help. It used to be three days worth of basic food. This fetishisation of food banks drives me mad. Also, starving nurses. Are you kidding? Well, this is the thing. I really wish these union barons would stop telling lies about people using food banks. It's embarrassing. It's really, really kind of debilitating to their argument and it's humiliating to the people who they're representing because they don't need that kind of sympathy vote. Nobody believes that teachers go to food banks. Nobody in their right mind believes that nurses eat food for the scraps of trays in hospitals. 
Nobody believes it. Why do they keep punting it out as though it's true? And why are we being shamed consistently into paying? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. People more money who already make more money than most people. What's that all about? This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The culture wars continue, ladies and gentlemen. We've come out of the big day yesterday, 500,000 people supposedly on strike. Uh, For those of us who were at work, many people would say, so what? Did you really notice the difference? Did you go about your day and was it changed in any way? You might not have been able to get a train. You might not have been able to get a taxi. You may not have even been able to get your children into a school. However, was your day universally changed? Did it matter to you that all of these so-called public sector slaves were actually out on strike complaining about their lot, telling us all about how they had to go to food banks? They didn't look particularly hungry to me, most of them. Most of them were marching around central London and other parts of the country, waving banners that said things like kick out the Tories and Tory scum and socialist worker party and bring down capitalism and all that sort of thing. Because, of course, if you're a teacher now, uh, it's got nothing to do with teaching children. There's a new law that's being considered by the government to be brought in, which will make teachers say whether they're going to go on strike. Because the result of what happened yesterday uh, was that an awful lot of schools were forced to close down because teachers would not say whether they were going on strike. Because they said, we have no reason to do so. The law says we don't have to. Yeah, but what that then makes you is anti-child. What that then makes you is anti-student, anti-learning and anti-school. And if you're anti-school, anti-learning, anti-child, 
um, and anti-teaching. What are you doing working as a teacher? That would be my first question. And if you're in the civil service, how awful exactly is your working day? How terrible is it that you have to strike for better paying conditions? Why are you telling everyone that nobody wants to do the job, even though most of you still work from home? What is that all about? And why would you wish to turn a perfectly normal job into a battering ram against a particular form of politics? That's the bit I don't get. 0344 499 1000. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has made it to 100 days in number 10. And of course, he will be sitting down for an exclusive interview with Piers Morgan tonight from 8pm. Don't miss PM and the PM. It's on Talk TV and Talk Radio this very evening. You can watch it on Sky 522, Virgin Media 606, Freeview 237, or listen to Talk Radio on DAB or via the app, of course, as well. You know, plenty of people out there want to talk to me. Loads of you will talk to me. Let's talk now, though, to Professor Frank Ferrady, author, journalist, sociologist, a man uh, who knows an awful lot about an awful lot. Let's see what he thinks of what happened yesterday. Frank, a very good morning to you. Hi there, how are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Um, Considering it was meant to be a great social movement yesterday, you know, the earth did not move for me, I have to say. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to get to work. I did my job. Uh, I worked quite long hours, actually, yesterday. Uh, I'm not asking for any thanks for it. I'm not asking for anyone to clap me. Uh, I'm not asking for any public sector pension benefits to come my way. I just want to be able to get on with my life. Um, Half a million people in this country, however, seem to think that it's a great idea just to march about shouting down with the Tories. You know, I think the world has changed. There used to be a time when strikes really had a big impact on society. Yeah. And when things became paralyzed and, you know, people could, couldn't really get on with life in the way that they were used to. I think these days strikes have a much more of an irritating impact mm. where they inconvenience individuals, particularly those individuals who want to take a train to get to work. Uh, they often find that uh, if you're a parent, you might get really irritated by the fact that your school is closed yeah. or you're, you're told that your child, there's no place for your child in the classroom. So it does have an effect, but it's nothing like the way it strikes used to uh, work. And I think what has happened increasingly is that trade unions, particularly trade unions in the public sector, have developed this fantasy, this, uh, this idea that if they inconvenience the public enough, if they make life miserable for consumers, for people taking trains, for parents, then something positive will be done, not realizing Mm. that that's not how the world works. The world has not worked like that for quite a long time, has it? And I mean, we've now got a situation where they're actively, I think, creating a two-tier system in this country, public sector workers who obviously think far too well of themselves uh, to actually uh, consider anybody else in their firmament. You know, they talk, they talk down to us now as if, you know, we don't do anything that's worth a fag end. You know, I have these rows constantly on Twitter uh, with people who claim to be teachers or nurses and they say, well, what do you do for society? You know, we do this. And it's like, well, you don't actually do that much for society because, first of all, you don't do your job very well. The chances of actually seeing a doctor are less now uh, than if you live in Azerbaijan, I think. You know, the chances of seeing um, um, uh, um, a teacher who actually does a decent job rather than trying to, you know, redefine whatever education is. And uh, good luck with that, you know. So, but they have this incredibly high self-esteem in which they believe that they are on some kind of chosen journey and they are the chosen few. And the rest of us scum are just here to kind of make sure that they get enough money for doing it. Well, I think you're right. There is a bit of uh, 
self-serving arrogance mm. that suggests that, that somehow we've made this incredible sacrifice that we are the good people yes. we are we're the people that are really aware whereas everybody else is just somehow a narrow-minded money-seeking uh, private sector right. kind of worker yes and by the well, way uh, can we have some more money please yeah but there's also another thing that's often overlooked which is something that is particularly striking in the civil service where it's almost as if they've infantilized themselves mm. and they're continually talking about pressure and burnout and how difficult their job is and basically what they are saying is that a, a nine-to-five job is one where you're expected to work fairly steadily and fairly hard it's not meant to be a playground you know where you're given a lot of uh, time off I mean you can mess around you know in the sandpit and I think it's interesting that many of them are complaining, for example, about being bullied by Dominic Raab. Mm. And, and, and to me, the idea that these high-flying civil servants who've got you know, great degrees from Oxford and yeah. Cambridge, who are on the top of their game, are being bullied by another individual, and that somehow they're being traumatized uh, by the fact that uh, good old Raab is putting a bit of pressure on yeah. them, uh, and, and then taking that seriously is a symptom of the childish culture, that kind of infantilized culture that's been institutionalized, at least in the civil service. Totally. And exactly uh, the, what the problem really is, because one of the, one of the re real difficulties, as we know from Jacob Rees-Mogg's time in government, is actually getting these people back to work in an office. You know, it's almost as though you're asking them to sort of come and prostrate themselves on Procrustes bed and lie there for 15 days at a time while, you know, somebody stretches their body. You know, we're asking you to come back to work. It's not torture. You know, you get paid for it. It's not as if, you know, you didn't sign up to do this. And they're like, no, 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 because now I don't do that because now I have to have a work-life balance. And now, you know, I need to be careful that I have some blended work going. You know, it's unbelievable what they're going on. And not just work-life balance, but... I sometimes get the impression that there are civil servants who have concluded that the parliamentary opposition is very ineffective, that the Labour opposition isn't going to seriously put pressure no. upon the government, and therefore it becomes their job as civil servants to make life as difficult as possible for anybody in government who wants to get things done. And therefore, probably they tell themselves that you know, our lack of work ethic our, our uh, reluctance to get stuck mm. in is actually doing some good because it's making life difficult for these horrible Tory ministers and make it undermines their claims and authority mm. because it becomes very evident that nothing much gets done, certainly not in our department. So there's a clear political underlying motif as well, which uh, converges with their reluctance to get stuck in and take their work seriously. Yes. And then on the other side of the coin, you've got the uh, the crazed um, Welsh Rugby Union, uh, who, I don't know whether you've heard about this this morning, who have decided to ban uh, the song Delilah uh, because apparently it's about domestic violence. And you kind of go, oh, for God's sake, you know, one of the problems, one of the real problems actually in Wales, and I know this from working there for a very long time, uh, is that after every uh, national Welsh rugby match, if Wales lose there's a higher incidence of domestic violence because the men tend to get very drunk and go home and beat up their wives. Not particularly a Welsh thing. It's just so cool. Just so happens to be a study that I remember doing uh, when we were there. Um, I don't think banning a song is really going to stop that. I think there are people around who are essentially they're kind of what I call grievance archaeologists. Yes. And they're trying to dig up <laughs> problems everywhere. So they look at old songs. They look at old films. 
they look at old books, and oh, and, and then they say, oh, this is unacceptable now because somebody raised their voice to a child, and therefore that's got to be censored out. So there's this kind of uh, industry uh, of, of sensitivity readers who are basically trying to find things to ban and to cancel. Because almost as if it becomes a badge of honor. Oh, I spotted the lie. I've never thought about it before. Let's get rid of that. And that then becomes a cause that they can then uh, sort of say, I was responsible. I can tick a box. That makes me feel really, really good. But as you say, when people sing the song Delilah, the last thing they're thinking about is domestic violence. That's not really what's on their mind. Well, I mean, most people probably don't even know the words of the song. But, I mean, it's forever been associated with Tom Jones. It's been forever associated with Wales and with rugby. Um, you know, but it's completely nonsensical that they would say to people that you can't see it because you know what's going to happen. You know, whatever the opening game is uh, between Wales and whoever, um, you know, all they're going to do is sing Delilah all the way through. Well, that's already what happened in um, in Spurs matches where the, uh, Tottenham Spurs fans yeah. were told, you cannot call yourself a Yido. Right. And uh, I remember the, the day that, the, the week when they banned the, 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 the slogan, Yido, 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 I went to the match and literally for 90 minutes, everybody was uh, chanting, you know, we're the, mm. we're, we're the Yids, we're yeah. the Yids, as a, as, a, as a kind of defiance to the attempt to cancel their way of life. Exactly right. And I'm afraid it's, uh, it's managed to inveigle its way in uh, to the Beano today as well, because apparently <laughs> the Beano has been accused of being incredibly irresponsible for promoting junk food to children because of online quizzes such as uh, things like uh, how well do you know the Nando's menu um, and the ultimate McDonald's quiz. And apparently um, uh, they're supposedly being accused um, of calling vegetables vile. I mean, imagine that. Imagine children thinking vegetables are vile. How dreadful. It's, yeah, I've never heard any child ever say that. That's just unthinkable. But, you know, it's very funny because these grievance archaeologists that I mentioned, you know, are, are, are so busy. They've got so much spare time on their hands that even children's comic books now become part of their targets. And yeah. you can really imagine these guys sitting around late at night, carefully reading through Beano's. Yeah. You know, what is it that we can spot that we can make an issue out of? With, with literally no irony at all. You know, you're actually sitting there as an academic reading comics to find something to be offended at. That's right, yeah. Incredible. For them, that's like a real high. Mm. Uh, I finally found something that offends me. That makes my day. Yes, absolutely right. Um, since we're on the subject of Rishi Sunak today, it's his 100 days in office, right? Um, we must touch upon it before I let you go, Frank. Um, can you remember anything he's done in the last 100 days worth of fag end? I'm not really sure. I, 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 all that I, I do know, and that's very much to his credit, is that there's been no great scandals under his watch. So uh, he hasn't done anything remarkable. But the very fact that he's been unremarkable is an achievement yeah. in comparison to some recent prime ministers. Well, I mean, I suppose you say there's been no great scandals, but ever since he announced himself to be the Prime Minister of Integrity, he's had to let quite a few people go as a result of that. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think uh, when you do that, when you basically uh, pretend to be the moral authority of the nation and you advertise your integrity, it's inevitable that sooner or later the carpet will be uh, sort of kind of pulled under your feet yeah. and you realise that the world doesn't work like that. Yeah. 
Unfortunately true. Frank, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Professor Frank Ferradi, uh, their sociologist on the ridiculousness uh, of the wokists, of course, who now not only want to ban the song Delilah, uh, but now also want to tell the Beano uh, that they shouldn't keep poisoning our children's minds with ridiculous ideas like vegetables are vile. Well, kids do think vegetables are vile. It's up to the parents to make them eat them. They don't have to enjoy them, do they? That's life. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've been speaking about a great many things. The 100 Days of uh, Rishi Sunak. Uh, Piers Morgan's interview has now taken place. So as much as I would be very happy for you to continue to send in questions, um, we won't be able to pass them on to him because he's done. Uh, but he says uh, it is the most wide-ranging and longest interview that Rishi Sunak has done since he's became Prime Minister. That will be on tonight, 8pm, uh, on Piers Morgan Uncensored. You don't want to miss that right here on Talk TV. Now, though, uh, we're going to go back to a story we mentioned a little bit earlier and we've taken some calls on it already. Front page of the Times this morning, British gas breaking into homes of the vulnerable. It's a Times investigation uh, conducted by the head of investigations, Paul Morgan Bentley, who joins me now. Paul, uh, very good morning to you. Congratulations. Another great story for you today. Um, uh, Incredible quote from um, a guy who's pictured on the front, Alfonso, who calls himself a former police officer who collects debts for energy companies. He says, if they're just saying, oh, I'm a single mum and I've got three kids and rah, 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 that's not a vulnerability. I'm a bit old school and a bit hard-nosed, indicating that really this is a pretty um, ruthless business that these guys are engaged in, breaking into people's homes forcibly, putting in pay-and-display, uh, pay if you like, meters, so you can't actually get any electricity or gas without using it first. Um, how did you get onto this? Well, it's, I think that quote that you picked out is really important because if you, if you put that alongside the types of corporate quotes that you usually get from companies like British Gas that yeah. talk about being here to help your customers, mm. being, you know, if you've got a vulnerability, just call us and we'll help you out. And the yeah. reality on the ground is very different. Right. Um, and this, this is something, this issue about prepayment meters, um, and just to be clear about what that means, so it's if you've got a prepayment meter, you've got to top up. And if you don't top up, you get cut off. You basically pay for your your power before you use it, in other words, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then if what usually happens is the company will also take a, an amount per week off that mm. to repay your debts. Right. So if you're putting on £10, that full £10 not going on it. Right. Um, and then if you run out, you've got no heating. Mm. And when people are really desperate, that is literally making... It, those are decisions like, should I pay a bit more for what we're eating this week? Yeah. Or should I keep on coats inside? And if you've got young children, that's obviously yes. horrendous. Charities and campaigners have been talking about this this year. They've been very, very concerned about it. But what we wanted to do is really show what happens on the ground because the companies can come out and just say, oh, no, we do all these checks for vulnerability. Yes. And that one case study you've got must have gone wrong. And so we we wanted to see what actually was happening Mm. culturally. Right. And what we found is absolutely massive cultural problems and routinely breaking into the homes of vulnerable people and yeah. force-fitting these meetings. Because we've had a couple of people on this morning who've said, oh, yeah, but what are they supposed to do about people who just refuse to pay their bills? They've been given plenty of chances. They've probably had a six-month or maybe a year's battle going on, and finally they've now gained access to the home. Mm. We had one guy who said he used to do this for, for, for a living. Um, but it's clearly more than that, isn't it? It's, this is not just about people who are refuseniks, if you like, people who, just don't, who consistently don't pay their bill. Yeah, I think um, particularly this year, 
when all of us have had huge increases mm. in energy prices. Um, just to give an example, one of the, the houses that we were sent to to force fit a meter under mm. one of these court warrants, um, there was a woman there, she's a mother of four children, and the youngest was just four weeks old. And she talked about how her bills, they were paying in full. She was paying, I think, mm. £54 a month yeah. um, for her energy and, and, and gas. It was a small one-bedroom flat. Um, and then her small provider she was with went bust. British Gas took over. And the bills have gone up uh, by almost seven times. Right. Her partner is a, in construction. She, she's got four kids. They just can't afford mm. that increase. Um, so that idea that there are these won't pays and can't pays, I think, yes, there probably are some people who just refuse to pay. But what I saw on the ground were people like her right. who cannot pay. Who have pay. fallen through the net, effectively. Yeah, because, massively. I mean, you know, they might be getting, again, I mean, you know, the, the payments that, that, that have been sent out university, what, £66 a month to people. If you've got a bill that's £1,000, 66 quid ain't helping you really, is it? Yeah, you just you just can't pay it. And mm. she, she, it was heartbreaking talking to her afterwards because after I visited her when I was undercover with these debt collectors, I went back to her as a reporter and she kindly invited me in and we had this, this discussion and she talked about how initially when the bills went up, they tried really hard to restrict mm. the heating. They only had it on at night. Mm. And she said, but then they were coming back from the, the school run and her children's hands were freezing mm. and they started getting black mould above their door and she just thought, you know, I can't do this to them. Yeah. And so she, so she switched yeah. it on. And that's and, an understandable and also, yeah, decision. In, in, in cold weather, and it has been quite a cold winter for a lot of people, um, if there is no heating on for a long period of time, the house does get very cold. I know that sounds obvious, but, but you just can't leave it off, can you? No, it's so incredibly it, important. Yeah. I've got a young child. The idea of, of having our house cold mm. when he's in it um, is horrific. Yeah. Or having to make those decisions about, can I feed him a bit more? Yeah. Or should I, you know, what's more important, food or heating? Yes. And there is, in this area, so what, what's happened since the investigation is British Gas has come out immediately and said it's suspending the, these kind of force fitting of yes. prepayment meters. Which is an admission of guilt by itself, isn't it? Yes, and its CEO has been all over the place this morning talking about how sorry they are and how they're launching a thorough investigation. Mm. And it's a great um, first step that they have suspended this activity and they're not doing it right now. But what I, and I'm sure lots of other people would be concerned about, is that after the winter, they quietly start doing it again. Mm. And the next winter come, comes along and vulnerable people are being targeted again. And... Um, so really, it can't stop short. Mm. Uh, it, having a brief suspension isn't enough. And at the moment, I don't know whether you can answer this question, but is there a sort of um, um, a legal recourse if somebody does this to you? If you are sitting at home this morning listening to you speaking and saying, oh, this happened to me, you know, this week. What can you do as a consumer? You can complain to the company. You can go to the ombudsman. We know from statistics. You can also complain to Ofgem, who's mm. the regulator. We know from statistics that British Gas fare the worst when it comes to customer complaints already. Mm. Um, and so they can look into it. But that doesn't help you right now. Mm. You know, these processes take ages. Mm. Ofgem has come out strong and said that it's launching an urgent investigation and it won't hesitate to take enforcement action against British Gas if uh, license, license conditions are, are breached and things like that. Um, but we have to wait and see what actually happens. Yes, and I appreciate your time because you've obviously got to go off and write another piece for tomorrow's paper, presumably. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, thank you very That's much fine, indeed. Thanks. Paul Morgan Bentley, Times uh, Investigation Chief. Amazing story. Incredible that people are being treated like this. Absolutely disgraceful. Uh, we'll be bringing you more on that, of course, as and when uh, we get it. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got plenty going on coming up in the final hour of the show. Uh, we're going to be crossing live to the Bank of England where uh, our good friend Peter Cardwell, who filled in for me very uh, joyously on Monday uh, when I couldn't speak, uh, he's down there because the Bank of England have raised the interest rates once more to 4%. Uh, so if you're sitting there wondering with your calculator exactly how much that's going to be costing you uh, if you've got an average mortgage, uh, we'll be telling you. But it's basically going to mean that the price of all debt will probably rise. The price of credit card debt will rise. The price that you pay for your car could possibly rise. Uh, if you haven't got a fixed rate mortgage, that could be a problem as well. Peter will tell us what's going on with that. We'll also uh, be talking later to Martin van der Weyer, business editor at The Spectator. Also, we'll be bringing you more uh, on the old uh, Delilah situation as well, because uh, I've just seen uh, a tweet that's put out by Chief Constable Dr Richard Lewis. Now, this is a man uh, who knows a thing or two about policing. Uh, he's in Diffid Powys in Wales. Uh, he's the police chief's lead for drugs and the chair of Brit Police Rugby. Cymru, uh, Cymru, Cymru, uh, whatever it is. Anyway, here's what he says. He says there's been a lot of misplaced criticism of this decision to stop singing Delilah. The song depicts the murder of a woman by a jealous partner. For context, approximately two women a week are murdered by a partner or an ex-partner. It's time to sing something else. Or maybe it's time to start arresting the people that are assaulting their partners and murdering them, as opposed to murdering singing and songs. For God's sake, let's talk to Peter Cardwell, Talk Radio's political editor. He's outside the Bank of England. Peter, very good afternoon to you. Hello, Mike. Now, uh, we were expecting this announcement. 4% now uh, is the uh, the cost of, uh, of your interest rates at the Bank of England. That will have a knock-on effect, no doubt, immediately. Uh, what's going to happen? Well, it's hard to believe that it was December 2021 when the interest rate was 0.5%. Now it's 4% up from the uh, interest rate this morning, which was 3.5%. So if you have credit card debt, if you have a mortgage, if you have any loans to pay off or anything, the cost of that just got higher. And that is what the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee has announced today. This is the highest level since 2008, since the financial crash. And, of course, we are in a situation where the uh, inflation in this country is at 105 So the government wants to get that inflation down. The Monetary Policy Committee here behind me at the Bank of England, their job is to get inflation down as much as possible to that target. But of course, it's more than five times that target at the moment. So unsurprisingly, what they want people to do is save a bit more, spend a bit less, take a little bit less debt. So they have increased the uh, interest rate to 4% today. The Fed, the Federal Reserve in America, raised its interest rates yesterday to 4.75%. Some economists I've been uh, reading and speaking to this morning are saying that there might be one more hike possibly to 4.25% here in London for the UK. We'll see if that happens on the 23rd of March, which is the next time that the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee uh, meets. So it it sounds a, a little bit out of, uh, it is totally out of our control. Inflation, of course, is uh, completely out of control. But in terms of the Monetary Policy Committee, the men and women who met behind me this morning making that decision, the expected rise to 4%. Your mortgage just got more expensive. Your credit card debt got, just got more expensive. Car loans, anything else like that, just got more expensive right in the last few minutes. Yeah, exactly right. And as far as Rishi Sunak's kind of financial policy goes, obviously, you know, we, we are told constantly that there's a, there's a separation now between the Bank of England uh, and Downing Street and uh, no longer shall the twain ever meet. But I mean, uh, Rishi Sunak talks about bringing inflation levels down. Um, will he be happy with this move? 
Well, that's one of his five pledges that he mentioned previously. Inflation is forecast to come down. It should come down, certainly, in the next year or two years. And Richie Sunak says, judge him by that. Of course, Piers Morgan at 8 o'clock tonight on Talk TV, I'm sure, will be asking him about that. Interest rates up today, that's something that's just happened. And I'm sure it's something that Piers will be asking Rishi Sunak. The task, the sole task of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England is to bring inflation down. That is the main thing. So an interest rate rise should help with that in some way. But of course, we'll see also whether interest rates will go up again on the 23rd of March to 4.25%. That's expected. But of course, you just never know. But the 10th consecutive rise, this is basically foreseen by economists today an attempt to get inflation down but we'll see what happens because there are of course global factors it's not just about the interest rate here in the UK but all those global factors it's about war in Ukraine it's about the Russian uh, price of gas and the supply of gas it's about world markets it's about all sorts of economic factors that are outside of Rishi Sunak's control but what he's trying to do and what he wants to and what he wants the monetary policy committee to do is try to help to bring inflation down. Brilliant stuff. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Peter Cardwell, Talk Radio's political editor down at the Bank of England uh, with the news that the interest rate has now gone to 4%. As he says, hard to believe that it was 0.5% uh, a very, very short time ago, uh, literally speaking. Let's talk now though, to Martin van der Weyer, business editor at The Spectator, to see um, what the broader context of all of this will be uh, and when the Bank of England is likely to stop with this rather rapid rise in interest rates. Martin, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, good afternoon. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, there are some economists who didn't think that this was required on this particular occasion. There were some economists who thought that the last interest rate rise probably would have been enough. Um, where are you on that? Uh, I think that, that's quite a minority view. There was a difference of opinion between whether it might be a quarter point or a half point rise. And it'll be interesting to see when we get the full Bank of England report how many of the nine members of the MPC might have voted for a smaller rise than this one. But it was pretty clear the path is still upwards because the battle uh, against the domestic element of inflation is not won yet. And we've seen in in food price inflation, the figures we had earlier in the week, which are pretty startling and still going very much the wrong way, that the battle to quell inflation is still on and we're a bit behind the u.s and and you know the u.s has raised its rates higher than ours mm. but it's now indicating that it's going to slow down but it may still have a couple more rises so i think there'll be no surprise at all if we get one more rate rise in march and if that's a quarter point not a half point that will be an indication that the bank thinks the situation is gradually coming under control and I mean, there doesn't, as you say, seem to be much sign of that, does there? But we also have seen, in terms of the actual prices of things, there's quite a bit of gouging going on. I mean, we had Tesco's uh, boss the other week announcing that basically they've been having fights on and off with various different manufacturers who are simply sort of jacking up prices because they think they can. Yeah, and, and I'll bet Tesco has been sort of brutally squeezing <laughs> most of its suppliers in order to keep the price on the shelf in Tesco yeah. down actually below the real rate of inflation. So what we're seeing in food price inflation is that squeeze coming off a bit and the real the real way the markets are working uh, coming through. So I think that that cuts both ways. But the simple fact is we haven't we haven't beaten it yet. The Rishi Sunak's pledge to halve inflation this year isn't as brave as it sounds because 
the global factors are all now generally pointing towards a suppression of inflation. So he'll get the benefit of that. But in the domestic economy, supply glitches, labor shortages and wage demands are the things that have to be kind of keep the lid on for now. And that's where the rate rise they've decided a slightly bigger mm. rather than slightly smaller rate rise is needed, despite the pain and harm that does in the housing market uh, for mortgage borrowers and so on, because they're still fighting the domestic element of mm. inflation. Yes. I mean, one of the things that Rishi Sunak is credited with in his 100 days uh, of being prime minister is that he's kind of calmed the markets. And, and while obviously this is not his policy necessarily, it's the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England. Um, will this be a reasonably sort of um, well viewed uh, in development by the markets today? I think it's completely priced in. The pound was just drifting down was slightly first thing this morning, but the pound, at, I think, at 123 is, you know, way up from the 1.03 it hit yes. on the day of the quasi-calamity. Uh, so, yeah, markets are reading R Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt as being, you know, sensible people who are kind of on the right track. But they're also uh, seeing that the British economy has some built-in problems that IMF report this week saying we were likely to be the worst performing developed economy um, will have resonated with the markets somewhat. So we've got problems. We're on track. We've got a relatively sensible government. That's that's the market view. And what would be um, the, the situation with, with houses right now? Because obviously there's quite a lot of houses being built, even though people keep telling me we need building more houses. We need to build more houses. I keep seeing houses actually being built. Um, is the housing market likely to um, to respond to this in a good way? Uh, or is it going to make it even harder for people to get mortgages who don't have them? Ah, the two different things. I mean, so house prices are dropping a bit. I'm not one of those who say they're absolutely falling off a cliff. Mm. It's, you know, it's a, they don't it's seem a to be, do they? No, they don't. But they are drifting downwards. You'd expect that. And, you know, it's a very low point in the calendar for the housing market, January, February, who, you know, it's hard to sell your house anyway in the middle of winter. Um, so house prices will drift down or flatten, but I don't think that I don't see a absolute crash because lots of people are on fixed rate mm. mortgages and you can see your head now a bit. Uh, house building, different issue, as you say, wherever you go, every every village and small town. You, it seems you, that way to me. Housing. I don't know if it's just me. Um, but but there is still a chronic shortage of housing. It's always a puzzle, isn't it? Mm. We need 300,000 houses a year. For some reason, we don't get anywhere near it. We might get 180,000 or something. But the way, you know, families change and people move and so on, there's just never enough supply. Mm. House builders will be looking forward now two or three years. So they may be going on the front foot. But they, like everyone else, they have wage problems. They have supply problems, you know. They are. Alison Rose, the chief of NatWest, said the other day that her customers, business customers, are just basically borrowing to cope with the here and now. Mm. 
they're not borrowing to invest in the next phase. And I bet that probably applies to a lot of house builders as well. Sure. Good to talk to you, Martin. Thank you very much indeed. Martin van der Weyer, business editor of The Spectator there on the news that uh, the Bank of England has once again raised the interest rates to 4% this time. Um, he believes it's been priced into the markets. The market's pretty calm about the announcement. Um, but if you are somebody who is waiting uh, to either get yourself a mortgage or indeed to re-mortgage uh, your apartment or your house uh, or your barn or whatever it is you've got, you know, it could be that you'll be spending even more money now than you were yesterday. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.